Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the Fugazi catalog, from Fugae to Fugazi. I'm your host, Ian James Wright, and joining me today to discuss Cash Out from the 2001 album The Argument is my friend and sometime musical collaborator, Jay Underwood. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thanks, Ian. It's good to talk to you, and I like talking to you when you use your middle name. That makes it feel more official. I'm very... There are like three famous people named Ian Wright, so if I don't throw in that middle name, like, I I, I don't know. if It's it's all about SEO these days, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we, we are... Had in college, we had a an originals band, not to mention an award-winning White Stripes cover band. One gig, one award. <laughs> yeah, that's that's batting a thousand. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> quit while we were ahead. Yeah, exactly. I also, I guess, we also played in a Weezer band that same night. Yeah, I actually, I was thinking about that um, when you just brought that up, and and I want to point out that the White Stripes cover band was just me and you, right? And I played drums, and you played. Uh, guitar right uh and neither one of those instruments was our normal instrument uh at the time and so it felt extra sweet to win that yeah that contest we really took down that uh, gift certificate to the record store i think it was was our prize yeah i think i worked at that record store too so i got even a a discount off of the (sighs) the normal price which made it even sweeter yeah that's that's sweet victory right there do you want to uh Go back to the beginning uh, in terms of Fugazi. Do you remember your your early days hearing about them, listening to them for the first time? Um, what's your Fugazi story, Jay? Yeah. Um, so I grew up, uh, I moved from Richmond up to a town called Fredericksburg when I was in middle school. And um, I remember the summer that I moved to Fredericksburg uh, I moved right after the school year was over. So there was like three months or something where I didn't have any, uh, know anybody. We were living in my grandparents' house while our house was being figured out. And um, I found this old Yamaha acoustic guitar in the basement and decided that I was going to learn how to play guitar during that summer. And I remember um, it was a really bad guitar and I it was really hard to play. Like I don't think the strings had been changed ever. And it was, you know, an ancient guitar. And I remember talking to my dad and trying to negotiate a deal that if, you know, if I kept up with the lessons for three or four months that he would, you know, subsidize part of a a new guitar. And so in the quest for this new guitar, I ended up going to like the only guitar shop in Fredericksburg. I think there was a couple at the time, but there was, there was like the cool guitar shop and the other guitar shop. And so of course I went to the cool guitar shop and um, that's where I met a lot of the people that ended up kind of taking me on the musical journey that ended up being, uh, growing up in the, in the Virginia, I, you know, Fredericksburg is interesting because, uh, if you talk to the rednecks, it's not quite, uh, legit. It's not a, it's not the, you know, the, the real Hills. And if you talk to the city people, it's not the the suburbs either. So we're in this no man's land of, uh, DC suburbs. Yeah, I remember, you know, I grew up in the D.C. suburbs and kind of nobody there. My metric was always nobody there said y'all. When you start to get down around Fredericksburg or Richmond, y'all starts creeping into uh, people's vocabularies. So, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, it was definitely a gray area. 
and I don't mean civil war. <laughs> Actually, I do mean I do mean civil war. It definitely was a gray area. What am I talking about? Um, so yeah, no, I, I grew up um, in that area, and there was you know it was playing guitar and, and just you know a sponge for music at the time, and it's weird because I feel like even though it was you know the mid nineties. Um, maybe the early nineties at that point, the, you know, music was still really regionalized. Like you, you know, you'd, you'd hear of, of bands, but it wouldn't, there was no internet really. So there was no really easy way to, to access bands from around the world. It was basically kind of like who, who you could get access to locally or who, you know, whose brother would drive you to DC for a show or something like that. So a lot of the music was super regionalized and, you know, from the first point I can remember, Fugazi was was kind of like the kings of the of the the DC music scene. They they were they were just spoken about with almost uh, like a religious type reverence. Like right. you just they were just the the gold standard of the what defined you know what's good sounding in DC. And so I always had this this kind of admiration for them even before i even heard their music i just remember um seeing kids uh in high school that had white out on their backpacks that had written fugazi because that was basically the only merch you could get from fugazi was to like do make your own right and so you know people would write fugazi on their backpack their jansport backpacks and in, in white out or something like that which inspired a uh, one of the lyrics in the in the band that we were in together, I guess. <laughs> yeah, classic Zach Morrissey lyric of uh, right. putting white out on your Jansport backpack. Yeah, exactly. Nice, nice callback. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I feel like I you know was intrigued by them because you know Fugazi even the name, you know clearly it, it doesn't initially if you if you've never heard that word and you've never heard of the band you don't really know what to make of it it's not like a a set of words you've ever or letters you've ever seen in that order so you are kind of instantly intrigued and i remember i think it was the first time i saw them was on the national mall um in a tent and do you remember how they used to have this uh it was like a festival um and I forget what the the cause was or the reason was for the festival, but I remember going onto the National Mall, kind of in front of the Smithsonian, Smithsonian, and seeing just walking into this tent. And I still remember uh, Guy playing that Rickenbacker, and the sound wasn't you know fantastic, but the it, it didn't really even matter. It was like the energy. There was just some it was just like walking into a power plant or something, you know, you like energy was being created in this tent. And so you, you just were kind of taken aback by this whole experience that you didn't, you were trying to process it in real time. And it was just very difficult to, to even understand what you were looking at. And, but there was something just undeniable and super intriguing about it. I think that was the first time I saw them. i never saw them play in the national mall. Um, but I think I know I've, I know about the, concert you're referring to yeah it was uh i think you and i only saw them together one time um which was at that university of richmond show yes the um the cold show the one that was freezing <laughs> yeah that was nuts um, it was 
Yeah, I remember standing there. It was I think it was like a the Greek theater or some kind of you know outdoor uh, theater, and it was so cold. We were just sitting there, you know, standing there trying to to survive until they came on, <laughs> and um, it seemed like it was an eternity between you know the opening band and them. I, or was there an opening band? It just seemed like we stood there for a long, long time. I can't even remember. Um, but it was worth it. I remember they played for, you know, a really long set. I thought it wasn't, they didn't seem to feel the cold the same way we did. They were still uh, feeling it though. Do you remember they, they had to, you know, they messed up one or two songs cause it was so cold. Their fingers were like frozen. They were like, all right, we, we got to start over again. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I listen, actually listen now to Fugazi and I listen to the, the, you know, the guitar parts. And I think to myself about that show, like how, the heck did these guys play these parts right with like a frozen hand i can't play them with a perfectly conditioned hand yeah it's amazing they're they're very different kind of guitar players it, it's it's hard to describe i guess i would say the guitar players that people normally idolize um you know a, a, a relatively experienced player can sort of hear that and still pick it up right away even if it's difficult to play um yeah, Ian and Guy played differently in, in very creative and interesting ways. Um, so even I would say, yeah, even if you're pretty experienced, you'd listen to a lot of those songs and be like, "What's what's happening there exactly?" It'd take you a while to figure out. Totally, and I and I think um, I'm trying to think through some other groups in the DC, you know, music scene, and I feel like that kind of um, counterintuitive guitar style was a feature of a lot of groups there. And I feel like it all came from Fugazi. I mean, there's probably people that they would point to and say, well, that we, you know, we were influenced by all these people. But, um, for me, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's almost like you can't see, you can't obviously see how they came up with that. Um, there's some additive stuff going on and some subtractive stuff going on as well. And that I feel like makes a, a very, a unique uh, guitar sound and it just makes it really interesting to listen to for me as a guitar player so as a guitar player um before we jump into talking about this song proper um would you say you were influenced in any ways by fugazi or you know as a musician not just a guitar player but in any way Def- i mean i feel like um where my direct influences from fugazi came up would be i'd be you know practicing some some ideas or trying to, you know, develop some ideas and I would stumble upon some kind of riff or some kind of, you know, progression of chords. And I never got into like alternative tunings that much, a little tiny bit, but not as much as some people. And I feel like when I was jamming along and working on songs with myself, I would stumble upon something and be like, Oh, that sounds like it has a Fugazi type like Fugazi would kind of become a, an adjective um, for me. And yeah. it just, I don't know. It's like they had claimed an entire part of the musical universe for their sound that no one else really had. And I remember, um, this is a little bit tangential, but I remember seeing Q and Not You perform um, right when they kind of started uh, playing, even before they had a record out. And they had the same 
the same gift that I thought, uh, you know, there's just the, that real innovative way of creating sounds and kind of mixing them together. And like a less is more like they would get really, you know, energetic, but it wouldn't be because they were just blasting you with like super loud guitars and super high, you know, energy drums. It would be, I think their drummers sometimes played with like a real tiny kit, like a, just a snare drum and a bass drum or something. And maybe like one or two cymbals. And they could do so much with that. And Fugazi really, to me, drove that whole, that whole way of doing music. Like you could basically be punk rock without just being super loud. Interesting inventive parts adding up to something that is amazing, but difficult to understand how it's just, you know, for, for guys playing. Yeah. It's, it's almost like they didn't rely on, uh, it's like they didn't get lazy. Like, I feel like when, you know, you remember this from being in bands is, you know, you come up with a, a cool idea and you're like, this is cool, but it's only one idea. We need to fill this out so we can have a whole song. And I feel like sometimes uh, what would happen is in order to kind of move forward and f- finish the song, you just kind of put some filler in there, right? And repeat what you have or have, you know, the bass and guitar do the same thing or something, right? Where you just, you don't, you stop innovating you kind of just start producing. And whenever I listen to Fugazi, I feel like they never did that. They never got lazy. They never just said, Oh, well, let's just do the verse and the chorus one more time. Um, they definitely repeat things, but it's not, it doesn't feel like they did it because they were trying to finish the song. And so it's this, this interesting combination of ingredients that don't feel overly heavy handed, but, also don't feel, you know, low energy, um, which I think is the, one of the special things about their sound. Yeah, well said. I know exactly what you mean. So talking about Cash Out, I talked to you about whether you'd be interested in doing this podcast. Um, you seem to zero in right away on this song as something you wanted to talk about. So let me give you the first word. Um, why? What? What is it that attracts you to this song? When you started... Um, telling me about your your podcast i i immediately like you said i immediately was like oh cash out that song that song's great kind of to me i know it's one of their much later songs uh, which usually for people that really follow bands um my guess would be that uh generally speaking people who are you know diehards actually like the earlier stuff more um than the later stuff even though I feel like with great bands, you can just appreciate all parts of their catalog. But for me, this song really um, has a, like a combination of a bunch of different things that I feel like really captures all the things I liked about Fugazi's sound and, and their lyrics and just the, the style. And so whenever I'm, you know, Jones in for my Fugazi fix, I, I often listen to this song because I, I feel like it's, it's just, it gives me a lot. Um, and it has so many little detailed, uh, intricate parts that are very fascinating to me as a listener, but it also has an energy that makes you feel like, you know, you're, you're part of something. Well, I'm all about the details on this show. Uh, you want to, want to call out one of them and talk and let's talk about it. Yeah. So yeah, totally. Um, so I love, you know, it's, it's great listening on headphones because I feel like 
you get a lot more of the stereo panning and all the different ways that the recording engineer, and I know you had Don Zentura on, on the, the program, um, earlier and he's like, I, I listened to your episode and he's, I, I just love the way he approaches recording because he's just, first of all, just such a even keel guy. Um, I remember I'll tell you a quick story that, well, I guess I'll tell the listeners cause I told you this story many years ago, but you and I always quoted this story that, um, a friend of mine who's an, an engineer and I'll leave names out of this to not start <laughs> some kind of like hip hop style beef. Right. But, um, I remember my friend telling me that, you know, he was in this recording session and the, uh, engineer was getting frustrated with the band. And well, wasn't it like, uh, he was spent up. If I remember the story correctly, I think you told me he spent like a long time setting up the drum mics, right? He was just like miking the drums in this very intricate way. Yes. Yeah, and I think you told right. me that that's like right. at some point, I mean, the drummer wasn't in the room, but he sort of like came in there and, you know, went to sit behind the kit and sort of moved the mics out of the way and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Exactly. Exactly. The, the, the drummer came into the room after this guy had like intricately set up, um, sits down to the kit and kind of does what drummers do, which is like, you know, fiddle with things a little bit and like move things around. And he like moves a couple of the mic stands and the engineer comes out and he just, you know, comes out of the booth and he's like furious and he goes, you just fucked me. You fucked me and you fucked your entire band. And he like storms out of the recording <laughs> session, which, uh, I don't think you could ever, <laughs> I don't think you could ever imagine Don Zentura. I kind of want to like hear a story. I hope one of your future guests has a story about Don Zentura getting mad about something <laughs> because I feel like, I feel like if you made that guy mad, you should feel really bad. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like that's definitely on you. Yeah. Don seems much mellower than that. He'd probably call you a goof and be like, ah, you goof. Let me yeah. do this again. <laughs> we, yeah, exactly. We, we, I, my band in high school actually recorded their uh, shout out to Kamikaze Escape Plan, Frederick Stafford, Virginia. But, um, yeah, we had a, a chance to record their little demo, like a three song demo. And, it was it was probably bad I recorded there in high school because it was so awesome that like everywhere I record for the rest of my life will be will seem to like pale in comparison just because you know I had like Don Zentura recording my band and he's just such a nice guy and he's so giving with his his wisdom on stuff and we were just right in that right sweet spot to like not have any clue what we were doing but really be eager to learn so I feel like we just learned a lot about how to make good sounding stuff um, just from watching him. And, you know, he's so giving with his time too. Like he doesn't, he's not sitting there going, you know, stop bothering me while I'm recording or anything like that. He's just a, he's just a nice guy. I wish there was more guys like that. Yeah. All of which is by way of saying like the production on, on this and the album in general is great. Yeah. I, I wrote down the same thing, like the stereo spread, like this is a great song to listen to on headphones especially for guitarists who are interested in discerning which part Gee is playing, which part Ian is playing. You know, they have the guitars panned. And exactly. You can, you can really enjoy the sort of dual guitar interplay. You got Ian playing those yeah. first, like, dun, 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 and then Gee comes in with this, like, really sort of, like, sinewy, snaky part. Uh, it's very cool. 
Yeah. And, and speaking of the details, I know I went off on a tangent about the inner ear, but, um, the detail, uh, like I, from the first second of the song, like the first thing you hear is a guitar, um, pan listener left kind of giving a, it almost sounds like it's loading up, right? It's like, it has this little guitar slide. Yeah. A little, like a pick scrape or just like finger noise or something like yeah, that. Exactly. And it's like, it kind of gets your ear ready uh for what you're about to experience but i like it because they could have just started with just the drum beat that comes in right after that and the beat's real real sparse it's not like you know full-on i I always felt like the fugazi drummer played with um such precision it always sounded like he played with like really thin sticks to me like almost like pencils or something <laughs> if that makes any sense i i have um, one of brendan's this, sticks um i snatched it off the stage uh at one of their shows um i think it's just like a normal what is it 5a uh i i don't i know so little about drums yeah, i don't probably, know what's a normal uh, size drum stick i think that's normal yeah 5a i i think it's probably a normal stick but he just i felt like he was so good with the dynamics of them that he f- sometimes it feels like he's playing with like a real thin stick and sometimes it plays like it feels like he's really you know bashing i really love the little like click a click a thing in it i guess he's it's he's like doing little rim hits or something um that part is so cool if i could play drums i'd probably just sit there playing that for hours totally and 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 i actually saw them play at mac rock and i think it was like 2002 2001 or 2002 um which was the mid-atlantic college radio conference at um, jmu did you ever go to that no, what did I go to? I went to one in Charlottesville, but I never went to Mac Rock. That Mac Rock was was kind of legendary, um, at least from what I remember. Um, there was the the Fugazi uh, show. That was the only time I've ever seen Fugazi play inside. By the way, oh really? Um, they played in this gym. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which was very interesting. Um, they had two drummers, so they had Brendan and they had Jerry, um, another guy. Yeah, yeah, Jerry, exactly. And I think um, Jerry does all auxiliary percussion on cash out as well um i know there's about halfway through the song you hear some cabeza come in there that little um it's like a a thing that has a handle on it and some a ball bearing kind of beads oh right and right right the little it, you, you kind of rotate it with one hand and hold your hand on the other side yeah, like and, you do that twisting motion it makes with this it? kind of swisher sound yeah exactly there's a little bit of that in there it sounds like um and I remember seeing them play with the two drummers and I think they had two drum kits. It wasn't just like a, you know, sometimes when people have auxiliary, like when you see pavement, you have uh bob yeah, on the like side, a pair of congas or whatever. Exactly. Like standing up and kind of doing the side, the auxiliary percussion like that. But I think when I saw um, Fugazi at Mac rock, they had, uh, they had the full double kit, which was, which was really cool. Not just you know um, orally, but also visually, it was cool too to see this you know the synchronized drumming had kind of a cool uh, visual to it. Coincidentally, that Mac Rock was also the coolest, probably the coolest thing I ever saw musically, which was the power went out at this little venue, and I was seeing um, this guy Jason Molina, who's who went under the name Song Zahaya, and he decided because the power went out, he was going to just take his little pig nose amp and his guitar and go play outside on the stairs. And he played 
um, his set on the stairs of the Harrisonburg City Hall. Um, and in front of like, I don't know, there's probably like 60 or 70 of us. And it was it was like one of the most surreal kind of haunting but like beautiful experiences I can I've ever seen musically. That's awesome. Um, that was the same same Macrock. So that Macrock was pretty cool. That guy passed away like five years ago or so, didn't he? Yeah, he he did. Uh, it's unfortunate because he he's just had a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, I to need to and I need to dig into his catalog. I never got around to it. I I think I saw him at the Charlottesville Festival. I um I mentioned previously. I guess he was. He was Magnolia Electric Company was the yeah, exactly. name he was going by at the time. Um yeah, I uh that's that's on my list. I'm very tardy in checking him out more. But um back to cash out, I I uh think that might like when you listen to that song, you think, wow, this song's really like like it, it kind of cranks into this really rock and um you know, section, but when you listen to it, it's not like they, you know, rely on a bunch of crazy distortion pedals or like really big drum, you know, recording tricks or like a ton of cymbals. It just has so such a good dynamic character to the song that you feel like when they change into that loud part, um, it's just it's such a good dynamic change that you, the energy comes with it yeah, automatically. And not only that... Um... Well, like you're right. It's uh, most of the song is fairly chill by Fugazi standards, and and very melodic and beautiful. It's one of Ian's, you know, one of his vocal performances where you're like, oh, this guy can sing. He has a really pleasant voice. But yeah, it's it's also I think something that adds to it is something about the nature of the composition. There's a lot of tension in it. Um, it's a very it's a it has notes that constantly are sort of like creeping up and down yeah i mean from from the very first um there's that main guitar part there's there's like a thing that joe does in the background so it's like almost chromatic these notes are very close together and like going down and up in a way that sort of builds up a lot of tension so that's that's something that helps the end explode the way it does yeah, exactly. I, I wrote, um, I was thinking about it and I was trying to, to kind of think through my, my thoughts on the song and I was, and chromatic was one of the things that I feel like chromatics, uh, walk downs and walk ups and, you know, half step changes in, in notes are, they're hard to do really, really well because it has a very particular sound. Like when you start doing a chromatic scale, you know, it's, it's very obvious that you're doing a chromatic scale and they're able to do it in a way that you don't immediately go, Oh, they're just doing like a, you know, chromatic walk down. And it doesn't feel like tacked on in any kind of way. Yeah. It's like the, it's like the, the anti arpeggiator. <laughs> right. Right. But yeah, I feel like that, that the bass in this song, um, it goes from, I mean, you're the bass player, but when I listen to the bass line, I could just listen to this baseline like by itself because it's such a, like a, it's kind of funky even. Um, and it's got that kind of round, it's got that kind of like Ernie ball bass sound <laughs> like that round, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
that sounds real, real. Um, yeah, I don't know the right word to describe it, but it just has that tone that you that's kind of funky. And especially when you hear like a bass note comes out by itself. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of treble character. There's a lot of just this sort of high end sound to it um, that sort of stands out from the mix. This is one of those um, Joe Joe Lally bass lines where he's like incorporating chords and stuff. You know, like I was I was listening to it trying to pick out all the different parts. There are certain parts of the song where you could be fooled thinking that he's like doing one of the guitar parts because he's sort of doing chords or double stops, um, kind of being in the backgrounds uh, supporting what the two guitars are doing. Um, but he goes into and out of that so seamlessly. It's not like he's like, here's the part of the song where I play chords for a while and here's the part of the song where I do single note bass line. It's, he integrates it all into one sort of fluid line. I mean, he's such a he's such a an interesting bassist that I feel like this song you get an appreciation for that, but it's also it's like a a song that features bass, but it's not a song that if if you if you hadn't heard it more than once, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's the song that's all about the bass, right? <laughs> um, there's another song that's all about the bass, I guess. Yeah, there's um, there's another song. But, <laughs> but uh yeah the the uh the way that i don't know the, when when you think through like how they wrote that song i always think about when when i hear a song i think how did they how did these guys write this song and most a lot of songs you can you can say okay clearly what happened was one of the the usually one of the singers had an idea and they came to the band and they said, here's my idea. And they basically played like us, like the guitar and vocals. And then the rest of the band kind of like filled it in, um, so to speak. And for this song, I can't, I can't make that determination so easily. Like it's like, I have no idea who did what it almost feels like it. Everyone is contributing just kind of a, a unique idea that came together to be a song. I don't, it doesn't feel like there's one, leader which i think is such a cool thing about fugazi songs yeah from from what i understand about the band and the reading i've done that's pretty much uh, as a rule how they composed like they nobody would bring in whole songs they would just sort of bring in parts and they would jam on that for a while they sort of they'd sort of compose together uh, as it was just sort of like in the practice room um, putting these interesting parts together and sort of putting vocals over it would usually be the very last step uh, that somebody would, yeah, write the vocals and the uh, the lyrics and the melody and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's cool that I it's cool that I didn't know that was the. I mean, that's that's exactly what it sounds like, and um, I could see that. Be, I mean, that sounds really ideal. Like if you if you uh, wanted to have a band, you could you know be like, hey, the way we're gonna write songs, band is we're gonna all come together and bring our parts, and we're gonna put them together and make these awesome songs. I feel like that's like a really um, good idea, <laughs> but in practice, like, as you know, from being in bands, it's really hard to do it like that. So the fact that they were able to do it like that and have it be something that they followed through their career is, is actually even more impressive because can you imagine getting together with three other people and saying, we're going to, you know, all chip in. And I mean, it just shows how much they all cared about what they were doing and how much they all they all trusted each other and respected each other's ideas, which I think is, is really cool. Yeah. And how much they're on each other's wavelength and how 
good they are, they all are as musicians, right? Like it's th that's the sort of setup where if you're playing with a few musicians who are just kind of like hacks and or you know just aren't very creative, um, you're not going to come up with anything good. It has to be all people who are super into finding interesting things to do and using that to come up with a song that really hangs together well. But it it also it adds up to a song like especially in this case um, that is sort of hard to imitate in any other way. So what I mean is I was looking up on YouTube to see if people had done covers of this song. Um, and I, I guess I mainly found two. The band Yuck does a cover that's like very faithful to the original with a couple of cool little tweaks, like mainly like, you know, there's a part where instead of playing the guitar just sort of drops out and does a kind of like some muted chuka 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 chuka. Um, just just little things like that. There's also there's like an RX Bandits cover that's even more faithful than that one. So, but really? and, but when you think about it, like try to imagine covering this song and not sort of playing the same parts. It's almost like what would be the point? Like the parts they came up with, the music they came up with for the song. It it is the song. It's almost like it would be pointless to cover it without doing the parts that Fugazi wrote. Yeah, it's it's like it's such a. Um... It's like almost like a poem, like a musical poem that's really specific. So like if you tried to para, it's like trying to paraphrase a poem. Like you can't really do that, right? Yeah, you lose the entire. Like you got to say the it. words. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could paraphrase a poem, but they would quickly <laughs> lose. Yeah, the essence would quickly be uh, taken away. Um, well, that's a good segue yeah, to yeah. talking about the lyrics of this song. I think. I mean, I, I'm sure you'd agree with me. It seems like a, a statement about, you know, gentrification. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like when I listened to this song in 2020, it could have been written in 2020. Oh, yeah. Which is one of the interesting things about Fugazi lyrics is that I feel like there's a timelessness. There's like a timeliness and a timelessness, which is weird, right? Like... How do they write things that are something that are so relevant, but also something that you can listen to 20 years later and be like, yep, that's right. That's truth. Yeah, this problem definitely did not get solved in the last 20 years or so. I guess in a perfect world, one day Fugazi songs will seem like they aren't timeless anymore. The opening lines of this song, I think, stand out a little in the, well, at least in the Ian Mackay lyrics of the Fugazi catalog because Ian's not a lyric writer who usually um, deals in specifics. Um, he's, he sort of has general things to say in his lyrics. On this one, on the other hand, he sort of sets the scene. He's like, it, on the morning of the first eviction, he locates us in sort of a time and a place. The furniture's out on the sidewalk next to the family. Like, he's painting a little picture there, and that's not something he tended to do um, prior to this that often. Um, and it's, it's really nice to see that side of him as a writer. Yeah. And, and honestly, um, when I, before I really got into Fugazi, I didn't understand a lot of their lyrics. Like I couldn't discern them. Um, and so I think one of the appeals of, of this song to me is apart from what you said earlier that, you know, you can actually hear what, uh, how good of a singer Ian McKay is. Um, it's kind of like you get more of a crisp uh, understanding of the lyrics right away. Yeah. Um, and 
that goes a long way into kind of setting the, the storytelling, you know, mood of the song um, because you're not trying to discern things. It's probably a really good trick for writing about a problem like this, which is a kind of problem that, um, what do I want to say here? It's like an, an emergent property, an emergent problem with capitalism. So like by like an emergent, to my understanding, an emergent property of something is like you couldn't you couldn't predict how it would work in a system by observing a small part of it, right? Like you could study droplets of water and understand what water is, but you you couldn't take that knowledge and extrapolate that and understand how an ocean behaves and like the tides and stuff like that. Like that's that's only something that becomes apparent when you observe that small thing in a huge system, and it's like. That That is sort of what's happening here with the problem of, you know, gentrification and where people are able to live. Because if you if you think of it in small chunks, like the very basic propositions of capitalism without any um, regulation, they sound really reasonable, right? It's like, yeah, I should be able to get as much money for my rental property as I can at any given moment, right? Like if if people are going to pay me a certain amount... It's it's crazy to like not accept that amount and have those people rent my property um, or even like from the other side as a member of like a, a, a gentrifying population. You're like, well, I should be able to live in the best neighborhood that I can reasonably afford. So like like why not? It's it sounds totally reasonable to be able to do that. It sounds impossible to argue against in any way. Like why should people not be able to do that? But like the whole thing, when you put it into a system and set it in motion without any kind of safeguards, it just it naturally results in stuff like mass evictions um, that are, you know, that are sort of turn out to be racist also. Um, so it's like it's so difficult politically to explain this to somebody who's not aware of it as a problem. Um, it's it there's no there's no I don't know. There's no headline to to there's no soundbite that can quickly explain why it's a problem. It's so nuanced arguments that where one side can dumb it down to the the simplest thing possible. Like we should be free to do whatever we want with our money. That's the side that usually wins in a, in a political argument. And, you know, that's the side in this, uh, in this equation where, you know, the gentrifiers, the developers and capitalism wins because it's so easy to make the case for that in a non nuanced way. Um, so, Therefore, to write a song like this and present a a sympathetic like character as a family, that's a smart way to go about writing a song like this. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I mean, it always uh, this kind of theme always makes me think because I you know I you know I look at things being built and things being developed and you know the way we're treating our natural resources and things like that and our human resources as a as a civilization. And I always think about this really transaction. This makes me think it's like a really transactional, um, thing for people. Like, you know, you, you build a place and you sell the place and then you're done or whatever from the developer's perspective. And and I, I get the allure of that, but I feel like that lack of kind of longer term vision is one of the, one of the issues, right? Like if you can, and that's kind of, I think part of the theme of, of this song is that, you know, the cash out part, the, the title of the song is that, you know, you're just trying to kind of get in and get out and, you know, extract something. And I think that mentality 
Um, if everyone takes that mentality, it, you're in for a, a big, you know, a big problem. If everyone's just trying to extract something from their fellow man. And I feel like that Fugazi's is so good at, um, at making you think when you listen to their music, but also, you know, I feel like it's not something that hits you over the head so bluntly that you feel like you have to fully buy into everything they say the first, you know, first time you hear it or else you're, you know, you're not doing it right. I think they, they do a good job of making it um, thought provoking and accessible for, for people like me that, you know, like to ponder about stuff like this. I think the, the, the one line about also in the beginning, the landlord and his son, um, that's an interesting line to throw in there. It's not just the landlord, right? He wants to include the landlord and his son um, in the lyrics, but just as a way of also pointing out that, yeah, it's not like that's another aspect of, you know, it's, it's rational. It seems rational for people to, you know, charge what they can charge, uh, get the money they can in the system uh, that we have, which is pretty much prizes getting money in any way possible. But it's it also shows how wealth tends to accrue within classes, right? Because it's not just the landlord. He's going to be handing down that the privilege, the money, the power to his son. And that's what results in, you know, often it's not the hardworking American dream types who really end up having the power in society. Often it's just, you know, some dope who has a rich daddy and inherited his wealth. So and that, So that's just another one of those emergent problems um just ending up with a bunch of those people in the seats of power yeah no i i totally agree i think those are interesting little details i also like the detail about the this little piggy went to market this little piggy stayed home reference in there and um you know because when i, I have a little kid and so do you and so i always think about um that nursery rhyme um because when you get to the roast beef part, I'm like, do we really want to <laughs> propagate the roast beef to the next generation? And then I sometimes think about this song, like, I wonder what Ian MacKay, when he does, because clearly he knows this nursery rhyme because he has it in his song. So I wonder what he would put instead of roast beef. <laughs> if you ever get him on here, um, tell him that Jay wants to know what I should be doing instead of roast beef, because I'm pretty sure I'll like his idea better. <laughs> I'll write that down. Um. <laughs> <laughs> these are the things that we got. These are the big questions we have to answer. One of my other favorite lines is, he says, the elected are such willing partners. Look who's buying all the tickets to the game. Makes me think of, so one of my favorite podcasts is called Roderick on the Line. I don't know if I've mentioned this one to you before, but it's like, basically it's, uh, it's, it's about John Roderick, Seattle indie rock musician, the founding member of the band, The Long Winters. But it's it's hard to describe the podcast. It's just sort of about his... Was he the guy in Harvey Danger, too? He, yeah, he uh, he played bass in Harvey Danger, I'm pretty sure. That's right. Okay, cool. Yeah, The Long Winters are really cool as well. Yeah. So it's a great podcast. Um, he, he has a very interesting way of looking at the world and um, and talking about it. But at some... At, like a couple of years ago, he actually ran for Seattle City Council... Um, and and so he sort of talks through it in the podcast episode by episode so you get to almost witness his process like what he sees what he learns what he understands um and something that he said in the midst of that um 
was really interesting to me where it's like, you know, we think of people who have influence in politics, like the, you know, the real estate developers, uh, the owners of large corporations, like so often we think of it as, um, you know, um, I'll, I'll donate to your campaign. So you do what I want, or, you know, I can, I can secure you the endorsement of this union. So yeah, you better play ball and give my business something that's useful to it. Um, and that does happen. But what he was saying is like the majority of it is really just the, the access that these people have to the politicians, right? Like they're, they're at the same dinners, the, the galas, they're at, they're members of the same country club or whatever. So they just become close and they're friends with each other. And like, that's it. Like, you know, like you're my boy. If, if I were a politician and I could do something to like do a favor for whatever it is, whatever way you make your livelihood, like I, I, I would be biased toward doing that. And like what he was explaining is that's, that's just the majority of what we think of as, as corruption. It's not some under the table money deal. It's just the access that, that people have um, and they, and they can buy that access. And I don't even know if it's, yeah, I think it's it's very interesting. It's as cynical as, as those people being like, well, I'm going to be a member of this country club because, you know, so-and-so politician is a member of this country club and, you know, I'm going to weasel my way into his circle. It's like maybe not even as, um, as cynical as that. It's, it just happens. Those are the people who have money. Those are the people who have power. They become friends and they look out for each other's interests and simple as that. Yeah. And I don't even think sometimes they even think about it. Like they're looking out for each other's interests. They're kind of just like, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if I, I you know, they're trying to, to be, you know, matchmakers in some, in some degree, right? They're, you know, you're probably pretty a social animal if you want to be a politician because you have to go and be social all the time. So you're probably just saying, Hey, you know, I, I've got a lot of friends that do this. This would be interesting. Oh, you know, what would be cool. And you're right. I think the access is, I think that's a really interesting perspective because I think you're right. I don't think the maliciousness is probably as big of a problem as the access. Yeah. And like, when you think about it, I'm sure it's, it's probably is like they're throwing ideas around and they're coming up with things that seem um, like it would be good for their constituents or the city. It's like, oh, we could build an, like uh, a sports arena here. We could build like this new marketplace or mall here. Like, that's great. It would be, you know, it's more jobs. It's, you know, blah, blah, blah. It drives the economy. Um, sounds good. Like I'm doing a good thing. Um, but the only, and the only problem is like the person who's not represented in that conversation is like the person who lives there and is not going to be able to find another place to live once they get eminent domain out of their homes. Yeah. It's a, it is a good, like, it's interesting looking at the, uh, you know, the landscape of the world through like Fugazi lyrics. Right. Because I feel like they're there's a lot of the essence they're they're good at capturing the essence of the problem through almost these little anecdotal like this is you know this song is a lot about about development and and you know class division and things like that um and you know it's i don't think anybody you know i hope i hope people don't like rejoice at the idea of people being kicked out of their you know their their house like that sounds really sad if people if, if there's a, if there's a team out there that's getting excited about kicking people out of their house, then I think that's the world's sadder than I thought. But I think what happens is, like you said, people 
it's like a a consequence that people are willing to to deal with because they believe in a system but as long as the system's kind of working for them they they don't really worry about it too much and there's yeah. enough people the system works for that you know keeps it kind of up running up and running yeah i think you're exactly um, right in, in terms of how they present situations. Um, I actually, so I found this interview with Ian Mackay from uh, 2002. It's this magazine called Verbicide. Um, I'll just read a little uh, snippet of it. I think he's backing up exactly what you're saying. He says, I usually don't write songs that offer up answers because most really perplexing things in the world don't have simple answers or don't have answers at all. And if they do, they have more than one answer, which makes it even more complicated. Um, he says, what I try to do a lot of times is I try to get people to look at situations. I try to express my thoughts about a situation because usually I'm looking at things in a way that I think is different from the way most people look at it. I try to shift the source of light to look at the situation from a different perspective. For instance, on the new record, there's this song called Cash Out. A lot of people immediately assume that this is an anti-gentrification song. But if you read the song, it's just saying this is what happens. The issue that I was thinking about in terms of that song is the fact that human beings, as far as I can tell, are actual entities. We exist. And when people are moved out of the places where they've lived their whole lives, because they actually do exist, there is a physical being. They have to exist somewhere. Everyone needs to be somewhere. So where is everybody going to be if it's too expensive to live everywhere, uh, anywhere? So that's pretty interesting. It's exactly what you were saying. Like, it's he's... He's not giving answers necessarily because maybe there aren't any, but he's just sort of presenting this situation, uh, this problem. Yeah, he kind of breaks it down to like the physics of what happens, right? And I, I like that. I mean, I always think about that with, um, I mean, you're a dog guy. I always think about that with um, places that allow animals, like restaurants that will let the animal sit on the on the porch or whatever, um, you know, like there's a certain number of dogs that like make a place really cool. And then there's like one more dog than that. And the place turns into a disaster. Right. And it always makes me think about rules like that. We set up as a society that like if everyone took advantage of this opportunity, what would society be like? Like if everyone had a dog with them at all times, what would the rules about dogs be? Right. And sometimes I think like a lot of the stuff we we do as a society is not because it's a a smart way to do it. It's actually just because few enough people try to take advantage of something that it doesn't become the most high priority problem for that particular situation. And I think I like I like that. I like the song even more now that I hear uh, Ian's uh, other Ian's uh, interpretation of his own song. And I guess that's probably worth more than my interpretation of his song, but, um, which seems similar anyway, but I feel like I like that, that he's kind of just trying to get the facts out there, right? Like this is what happens now, why it happens. There's a lot of discussion, but you can't deny that this is happening. Well, speaking of how much you like the song, I think it's a good time to talk ratings. Um, out of five stars in the context of Fugazi's catalog, uh, what do you think you would rate Cash Out? Oh, I think this, I mean, for me, this song is definitely a five. I, I, I love the production. 
actually, we didn't talk about this, but I think it actually is a, a cool um, bridge to the sound that ultimately the evens would would kind of use more. Yeah, agreed. Um, I, f- I feel like there's a, you can, you like, after you hear the evens and you go back and listen to Cash Out, you're like, oh, I can totally see that. It's like when you see a picture of, of you know, your your dad and you're like, that's definitely my dad, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's a cool transition, I think, between that sound. So I, for me, this song really does a lot. Um, it's not the song, like if you ask for, you know, a hundred Fugazi scholars, um, what their, uh, you know, favorite 10 songs are or something, this song might not make it onto the list of, of those, but, for me, this is one of my favorite songs. Huge like, rating. I think it's got a good good balance. I think for me, it's not quite top tier. I do still really like it for all the reasons we discussed. I'm going to go ahead and award it four of my stars. Still an amazing song. If we uh, if we ever get back into uh, playing music together, maybe we'll cover this one. <laughs> Attempt to do yeah, it justice. Yeah, we've uh, we've geographically managed to get probably the closest we've ever lived together except for the time that we lived in the same house. (laughs) Um, do you remember, um, I was thinking about this, uh, I was at back in Williamsburg, uh, last, not last Christmas, but the Christmas before. And I did that walk, um, between our house and the university center that felt like an eternity back then. Like it was a really far walk. Yeah. Um, it's not very far. It's like a two minute walk, um, which is kind of funny because we used to push. Remember, we used to push our equipment down the street. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. Yeah. You're right. And like, <laughs> like on, literally on, roll it on gurneys on or something like. Yo, yeah. Skateboards. Right. Yeah. We used to to like put your you had those bag end um one by what were they one by 12s or one by 10s one by 15s i'm sitting one by 15s i'm sitting four feet from those uh, bad boys at the moment yeah good speakers <laughs> yeah you had those those speaker cabs and they stacked and then we put your the head on top and i had that um little two by 12 marshall and yeah that was super fun man something i still Long remember Zach morrissey yeah what i still remember from uh the uh the old band days uh loading in and out gear is like you're you are um you have a real talent for sort of uh schmoozing i mean don't take that the wrong way but you know it is what it is and like i like people (laughs) yeah exactly at one point like we were coming back from a show i think i think and we sort of like pulled the car into uh an area we weren't supposed to be in um uh sort of started unloading this cop rolls up and he, he's like, uh, yeah, this, this isn't going to work. You guys have to. So you start just talking to this guy and you're like, oh, sorry about that. Like, um, is, do you know if there's a good place? In the meantime, like I'm hustling, like loading in all the speakers. Like I think we brought our PA on that occasion, like our own PA. I'm just like <laughs> humping this stuff back and forth while you're sort of talking to the cop. And so by the time you were finished talking to him, it was done. It was a fait accompli. And we we're like, well, thank you, officer. Um, all right. Uh, <laughs> thanks for being understanding. Be seeing you. So that was that was a good uh, example of putting that talent to uh, to good use. 
It's funny. I, I totally, I don't remember that story very well, but I know like those, all those facts are true because that is exactly what would have happened <laughs> if that situation had happened and is I would have started trying to talk to the cops and you would have kept loading. Yeah. It was, it was one of those great unspoken things. Like there was not a, nary a glance between us, but I think we both knew in the moment, like here's what's going to happen. And, <laughs> and let's, let's activate this plan. I love how that's a, was a problem, right? It's like parking your car to unload your music. That's how much we love doing it. Right. <laughs> right. Well, uh, I think that brings us to the end of the show and a bit of plugs. Uh, I don't know if you have any plugs. Um, do you want to uh, let listeners know about something that you have coming up or uh, anything like that? Uh, I mean, I think you're... Uh, I'll plug my... I'm doing improv now uh, as you improv theater, which has been kind of hard hit since the the COVID stuff started happening. So everyone should go to madeuptheater.com and check out my improv group. We're doing um, uh, like broadcast via the, the living room uh, shows every Saturday. So that's kind of fun. Um, and yeah, you know, it's really fun to talk to you about this stuff and take a little trip down memory lane. I'm sure we could, do a whole podcast that's just like growing up in rock bands and trying to be cool and you know trying to figure out what was going on um but i think universally like everyone that you know went through that in that period of time in that area just has this special place in their heart for fugazi that will probably always be there and and probably not be understood by a lot of the people that they come across in the rest of their life. Like when they move away or, or, you know, try to talk to people who weren't there. It just, it just doesn't have the same gravity that I feel like when you, you meet someone who, you know, grew up at that time period in that area and you talk about Fugazi, you can just, you just know, um, what, what they're talking about. Well said. So, That's, which is, for me, a lot of the point of doing this podcast, like, hey, just talking to people about Fugazi, it's a good time. <laughs> and uh, and you are no exception, Jay, so thank you for being on the show. And listeners, as for me, uh, I just have the same plugs as usual. You can reach me at FugaziA2Z at gmail.com, and you can join the Facebook group, The Alphabetical Fugazi, uh, comment on the threads for each show uh, if we missed anything that you think is really worth saying about today's song. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the show when we will be discussing Cassavetes. Until then, keep your eyes open. 